Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Chris Brown. I'm Professor of International Relations here. And it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome you to the LSE and to a talk by um, Leader Sheriff Fatman. So, was that close enough? <laughs> Very good, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to have a uh, leader here. I mean, as I, I, I'm a professor of international relations, and this is to, talking about an art exhibit, but one of the features of international, the academic study of international relations in the 20th century has been an interest in art, aesthetics, and emotions. And these are things that uh, leaders' work really connects with. So, from my point of view, it makes a great sense. One of the sources of her work is Ned LeBeau's book, A Cultural Theory of International Relations. She's also worked, I think, with Alex Danchev, who international relations scholars will know uh, is a leading philosopher in the field. So, it's a great pleasure to have her here with us. Um, I've been asked to ask you to turn off your mobile phones on the principle that it interferes with the navigation systems of the plane. Uh, but that's uh, probably not true, but still do it because otherwise the uh, folks get very upset. Um, and the second thing is, should, should you wish to tweet, which of course you can't because you've just turned off your mobile phone, uh, the hashtag for the evening is LSCIWER, Internal Worlds, uh, External Relations. So I think at this point, uh, uh, and uh, Adrian Caesar and Rory Arrow are sitting at the front here, and uh, they'll uh, take part in the general discussion uh, after the leader's presentation. But now I'll hand over to the leader, and I'm going to go into the audience so that I can watch the slides. Okay. Leader. So, thank you. Um, I'll just go with this microphone. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for being here. And for the introduction, uh, Professor Brown, I'm going to go straight into the presentation. Um, so I, uh, as a painter, I started my painting journey about 15 years ago. And um, it was always a question in my mind, you know, as a painter, you know, what on earth can I contribute to the society if I can just paint, look at something and paint it? Maybe people can decorate their house with it. But what more? There must be something more I could possibly do. And um, that's when I uh, got into uh, uh, studies of human rights and uh, international relations. Um, and the painting journey started by painting, um, creating paintings which had very obvious messages in them about uh, child labor and about... Um, abuses of women and about um, war. Um, and um, over the years, basically, the visual language that I was working on has evolved. And um, today, the exhibition which is being held at the Atrium Gallery um, is the result of these years of research, basically, trying to find that, um, that visual style which can... Uh, be a contribution, not just uh, a painting which is a decoration, but something a little bit more. And um, here I'll start. Basically, uh, the studies that I did in international relations brought me to theories of peace and conflict analysis. And uh, I came across the works of uh, 
um, Professor Richard Netlebo, who connects uh, four main driving forces in human nature that makes us belong to a collective and take actions within a collective. Uh, he refers to fear, he refers to reason and rationality, uh, and he refers to uh, honor and self-esteem, and um, he refers to appetite, appetite in terms of uh, wanting things, wanting to have things, be it possessions, be it social status. Um, there is a very old text by a Chinese philosopher called Tai Yantai, um, who has also done an analysis on human nature, and uh, I found similar points between the works of Richard Netlebo and, and Tai Yantai. And the, the rest of the academicians that I studied on peace and conflict studies all had common points in them. So I kind of put everybody's work together and um, started the paintings on our internal worlds. So the, my presentation basically makes a connection between the experiences that we have inside us as, as humans and how these uh, experiences internally are having an influence on the way we interact with, uh, with the outside world, be it with other individuals or be it with other collectives. And I think that once we become aware of this link between the inside and the outside, that kind of gives us um, an additional power how to change the quality of our life for the better, hopefully. So, this is a painting which is um, about the internal world of sufferance, or suffering. Um, suffering um, in terms of emotional pain, in terms of physical pain, sickness, um, you know, poverty, um, anything which can cause uh, pain, basically. Um, it's being represented through a volcano, and the lava is like burning suffering inside. And as the lava comes down the mountain, it's turning into cherry blossoms. Um, maybe in the slide you can't see, the paintings are at the Atrium Gallery. Hopefully you'll be able to have a look in person. Um, basically, in the, in the world of sufferance, uh, there are two sides to the story. This, uh, this suffering can, um, can make us take actions in a, in a violent way, um, and, and as we know, um, say people who are living in conditions um, of human rights abuses or in extreme poverty, um, they often have no chance but to resort to violence in order to you know, make a noise and change their situation. But in other cases, if the person is, say, strong enough, um, there is also another way to handle suffering, and that's uh, taking taking the noble side and, you know, letting that sufferance turn into grace, which I tried to show through these little cherry blossoms. Um, we have the case, for example, of Nelson Mandela when he was in prison during many years. That was a very difficult condition, which would have maybe caused many people to react in a violent way. Or recently, I don't know if you heard of the case of Nasrin Sotudeh, the Iranian human rights lawyer who was imprisoned. Um, for her lawful, you know, defending of um, political prisoners in Iran. Um, she also didn't resort to violence in prison, but she wrote 
letters, she had interviews, she, did, she went on a hunger strike. Um, so that is when one can handle suffering in a, in a positive way, if I may call it. And um, when, now this is on the individual level. Coming to the collective level, if the majority of the people in a country are in a state of suffering, uh, the way that that influences the relation of that collective with other collectives is that that um, society would be, in a way, attracting predators, if I may say, because when you are weak, you can't think very much long-term. You're in such an emergency to solve your situation that, say, if people come to make business deals with you, you're not going to think too much long-term. And um, the deals are going to be more of a short-term profit. Um, of course, if there are outside actors which act on a on a noble side, they would, you know, take care of that. They would not just uh, profit of the from the uh, they wouldn't profit from the weak uh, position of the of that society, which is in a, in a weak state. Um, and this is usually, you know, when you would have the case of dictators, for example. Um, the, uh, if majority of the people are in a weak state of suffering, it's very easy even for a dictator inside the country to, to dominate the people. So that's about the world of suffering. The next one, about the internal world of hunger. Um, uh, this would be close to what Richard Nettlevo calls appetite. Hunger referring to our desires. Um, if we have a desire uh, don't know, to have a nice house or to have power or to have um, status, desire for anything, basically. Um, when it comes to appetite or the internal world of hunger, uh, this desire is usually a driving force. So, say, if I'm a person who likes money a lot, um, I can possibly use that desire as a driving force to wake up early in the morning and go to work and, you know, do activities which can bring money in. The danger with, uh, with this state of life is that it can blind us towards other essential areas of life. So if our desire or appetite takes over other important areas of life, that's when the problems um, can start. To come to the collective level and to the international scene, when you have, um, for example, NGOs which grow international, say Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, um, there is a hunger in them, you know, the hunger to basically uh, help the human rights situation around the world. So they are using hunger in a more of a positive way, if I may say. But if you have a business company which grows to increase its profit, but then becomes blind towards the well-being of its employees, then that's when the hunger has taken over other important beings, uh, important um, assets of life, which is the well-being of the individual at the end of the day. So um, that's regarding the uh, uh, internal world of hunger. And an um, another um, point of influence is that from the outside, when the um, actors notice that a certain society is very hungry um, in a certain area 
and that they are being blind towards the well-being again of the, of the individuals, that also becomes a weak point. And if I may come back again to the example of uh, dictatorial regimes, um, when the government um, elites are hungry to make profit um, for their own limited number of elites and can't care less about the well-being, say, of other weaker uh, people of the society, and, you know, other actors who don't care about that, who are just also calculating their profit, know that the well-being of the citizens doesn't come into the picture, so they'll just, you know, make a profit, uh, they'll just take advantage of that and make their deal. So, so again, it, uh, once it blinds us towards the well-being of the individual, then that's when it works against us, this desire. Otherwise, um, uh, it can be a, a very good driving force. Any appetite can be a good driving force. Next is the internal world of fear, um, also animality. Tayantai had called it animality. Um, Richard Nedlevo calls it fear. Uh, fear basically is to, uh, towards one's security, be it uh, physical security, moral security, security for the identity, and um, this world of fear also has its two sides, if I may say. It can be useful when it comes to uh, makes us, uh, making us vigilant to create security, means of security. Um, I don't know, today we're having a talk. They had asked me, is this going to create any concerns for security so that we'll look after that? Or um, on the airplane, they make sure, you know, people aren't carrying any um, knives and, and bombs and so that's a means of security, which is okay. But uh, when that fear takes over all the other areas of our well-being, um, again, like the previous words, it can lead us to distraction. Um, what we consider our adversary or a danger, um, we want to basically eliminate instead of dealing with it. So... If I can use uh, on a collective level the case of the Taliban's, for example, the, I have some friends of mine who are working in Afghanistan, and they were telling me anybody that is working for the present government, um, if the Taliban have the chance, they'll you know behead the person. It's basically um, trying to eliminate totally any um, anything which is considered for them a danger to be it their morale, be it their physical well-being, or, or their identity. Um, and in the world of fear, we also have, uh, obviously, cr the creation of, uh, of wars, because it has to do with the elimination of the, of the adversary. One, uh, the, the, the positive side is the, is the measurements for security. And... I think um, even in terms of war, if uh, we were yesterday speaking about uh, whether war, you know, provokes any masculine, um, <laughs> you know, desires, but uh, there is a side of, of, of protection, so that animalish side can 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 have its protective instinct, so to protect the the weaker. Here, I put very little tiny flowers to symbolize the delicate side of life. And on the other side, you see children crying and people crying and running away. So when you see a weaker being than yourself, you can either try to protect it or you can basically destroy it. So that's about the uh, internal world of fear.
<laughs> Next one is the internal world of anger. Um, and this anger, um, in Richard at level, it could be uh, close to um, self-esteem and honor at times. Um, anger, could, uh, we could be angry for, say, injustice. We could be angry when somebody does something unfair to us. Um, but it can also be out of a sense of uh, supremacy and superiority. To, towards others, and that's when it becomes uh, destructive. So, say um, when there were the September 11 attacks um, on the U.S., obviously that was a very wrong action, um, and it provoked a lot of anger. And how that anger was then channeled um, you know, in order to deal with the situation could be questionable. I don't know how effective the, the attack on Afghanistan has been. But um, um, the way we channel our anger um, can be either destructive or constructive. So if, if say, we use that anger for you know, um, better measurements of security or better uh, international courts uh, of, of justice, that might be more effective than... Um, uh, you know, acts of, um, uh, what do you call it, um, not revenge, uh, retaliation. Yes, that is, um, on the painting, basically on this side, um, there are all these flowers going into each other in, in a very messy, uh, distractive way. That's when the anger could be self-destructive. Um, but on the other side, they're being directed and channeled. That's when we can channel it uh, towards a more constructive way. And um, many people ask me, how come you are using flowers for these paintings? Uh, the reason is that I was looking for a um, physical, tangible symbol, which doesn't have a problem with different cultures, since I'm traveling with this exhibition to different places. Um, luckily, no culture has any problem with flowers. And, uh, and then they told me, why do you use so many flowers on, on every painting? They have over 400, 500. One of them has about 1,000 flowers on it. And uh, the reason for that is to, to stimulate um, a sense of abundance, um, which I believe we do have, you know, as our potentials as, a, as, as people. And... Um, um, you know, when I started uh, this talk, I, I told you I was trying to find a way how, as a painter, I could contribute something to the world around me. And um, there is a small poem from Rumi, if I may just quote. Um, he said, I have been looking so hard to bring a gift for you, but what is the use of taking gold to the gold mine? And what is the use of taking spice to the Orient? And what is the use of giving you my heart and soul? Because you already have these. So I have brought you a mirror. Look at yourself and remember me. So I'm hoping that these paintings can be like a mirror for the viewer, um, that the viewer may find some form of reflection about his own um, state of being. Next is the internal world of calmness. So um, this would be when our basic needs are met. 
um, our need for food, for shelter, um, say we have our family set and our health care. Um, so everything is settled and we're calm and peaceful, um, which is very good, of course. There is just one danger with this um, state of being, and that's we fall um, in a bit of a passive mode um, because the world is all the time changing. So when, uh, when we are in, in this state, uh, you know, the waves of change can, can be very disruptive. Uh, for example, we have seen how you know, the waves of globalization have uh, created a lot of turbulence in traditional societies with the coming of internet and with the traveling of, uh, of people. Um, so that's the, that's the danger. And, and um, it, it doesn't prepare people to take challenges well. So that's with the um, internal world of calmness. And when um, the majority of people in a society are in this state, normally the, the collective would be seen as a, as a traditional um, society and also um, a very impartial and neutral um, society because they, wouldn't, uh, they would try to avoid trouble as much as possible. You know, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad, but um, that's the way the outside then reacts with us. Next is the um, internal world of temporary joy. So this is when our desires are met. Um, say, um, I wanted to have the exhibition at the LSC, and it's been done, and I'm very happy about it. Um, but... Does that bring me um, any stable happiness? Not really, because you know next week is going to finish and I'm going to go back home. And um, so, the, the um, in the temporary world of joy, um, when the majority of the people in a, in a collective would be in this life state, they'll be always looking for short-term pleasures, and this can make that society uh, not be taken too seriously. Um, say if there are people who are all the time you know, just thinking about partying because party brings them a lot of fun and a lot of pressure. Um, for, for the outside world to make serious deals, it makes it difficult to, to approach those people. Um, and the painting, the way I showed it is that on this side there is like the little... Um, like a little fountain of, of, of joy which suddenly comes out, but with anything small that can, uh, once that reason for, for the temporary joy is gone, you can fall back on your dark, sad side very easily. Then the internal world of search or learning, um, that's when we try to look uh, more in life, to learn um, you know, about the meanings of life, say about... Um, other countries, other cultures, and um, this is um, a world which brings us close to the world of rationality, which Richard Levo has referred to. And um, when the majority of the people in a society are in this state, they would attract, say, many researchers, many students. The LSE is an expression of that world of internal world of search. Um, um, the only danger in this world is that it might blind us uh, towards 
it might uh, blind us um, in the information that we find if we sort of detach from again from other areas of life especially when it comes to the heart and the emotions um, you know sometimes I was so surprised I, I had seen some Iranian students say going to the US doing or, or to the UK doing um, research work masters and PhDs and all that so they would spend years studying in these foreign countries and then they come back and without any um, form of, you know, heart attachment to that country. And they're like, well, I just went there to study. You know, I just wanted to learn the, about the course and come back and learn the technique, and that's it. So um, this is uh, the danger of the internal world of learning because uh, it can blind us towards the, the heart, the human heart. Next is internal world of intellect, very close to, to what we just saw in the internal world of search. And um, basically, this is when, when our intellect and rationality has flourished, which is, of course, very good. Um, it, it can make our deals with the outside world more rational, more well-informed, and uh, it, does, it does create more stability, in fact, with the, with the relations. Um, but the danger, again, remains on that disconnection from the heart. So if deals and relations are built purely on information and rationality without any heart, without any heart uh, connection, um, that's not always um, favorable for building long-term relations. Be between individuals or between collectives, I think. Um, in fact, at the moment, you know, uh, in the past few years, there has been the huge problem between um, the West and, and Iran regarding the nuclear program that Iran has. Um, Europe has offered several packages to Iran um, with, you know, expertise help because uh, Iranian government is saying that they want to use the Iranian uh, the enrichment for nuclear energy whilst the rest of the world are saying, no, you're going to make you know, nuclear weapons and we can't trust you. Um, so the, the, um, you know, if, if sort of their aim is to have nuclear energy, um, Europe has offered a good, a good deal you know, with, with expertise to help them, but they are refusing it, not because the deal isn't good, but because there is no trust between the two entities. There's no hard connection between the two entities. They keep you know, bringing up the past mistakes, and um, that's why it's not working. Uh, so the next world is the internal world of compassion, and this is where the hearts meet. <laughs> um, so internal world of compassion, when basically our human heart is connected to other people's hearts, whether they are in pain or whether they are in joy. And... Um, there is also a danger with this world, and that's when uh, we focus only on the heart and uh, think about other people. We might forget our own interests. Um, at the moment in, in Malta, there is a huge issue with uh, migration. They're having um, many people arriving from the African uh, countries, and they're complaining that we can't have so many people in the country, our resources are too little, and... Some, but you know, so that the country is in a way uh, being on two sides. People who argue that uh, you know we have to help these people. You know, how can you send them back? Others who say, but we don't have our own resources. This is a little island. How can we you know host so many people? 
Um, so in a way, um, when friends ask me what do you think, I tell them um, I'm, I'm all in favor of helping other people, but you can't forget your own interests. If it is going to you know, destroy your own life, you're not really helping others either. So this is the danger with the internal word of compassion, that if you want to help other people who are in pain, you might... Uh, you cannot be blind towards your own well-being either as another human. So that is the internal world of compassion. And um, the last one is the internal world of goodness or holiness, I called it. Um, This is the one which can take charge of all the other worlds which would be happening, be it anger, be it hunger, our intellect, our compassion, fear, our search, our joy, um, in a way that can be, uh, in a way that these words would be led in a constructive way, that they can improve the quality of our life. Um, For the international relations of a country, but it's very difficult to find the country where most of the people are in this state, but, but if most of the people are in this state, it does attract um, very stable relations. It provokes um, more trust with the outside. And even the, the previous word of compassion, this one also generates trust between people. Um, you know, I had um, one of the people that I have quoted in this paper is... Kenneth Boulding, I don't know if any, anyone is familiar with his work, and he does mention that power has three faces, and um, it's economic power. Um, you can have the... Um, yes, you can have the economic power, you can have the, the power of sanctions and, and, and you know, the, the real government's power, but you need also legitimacy for that. And in order to be legitimate, you need a certain friendship. You need to be accepted as another entity. Like at the beginning, when uh, this nuclear issue with Iran, when the U.S. started um, putting sanctions, the Iranian government wasn't even, you know, taking notice of of the sanctions, saying, like, who are you to give us any sanctions? But, um, well, they are having an effect on the country, but, uh, but just to say that lack of uh, friendship makes even um, economic and political power to, to decrease. So that's about the ten worlds in, in a very short um, form. <laughs> if, um, if I can stop here, I don't know how much time I've, I've, I've taken. To, to You've taken half an hour, which is great. That's good. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe if, you, if you'd like to... Sure. Yeah? Fine, well, thanks very much uh, for that. Uh, uh, it, I mean, we now have plenty of time for uh, discussion and for comments. Now, two of the uh, leader's colleagues here, yes. Adrian Caesar and... Kassel. Hmm? sorry. And uh, Rory Arrow. Uh, they've worked in different ways with uh, Leader, and so I'd like to ask them to to kick off with a few minutes each, maybe comments and also questions for Leader, since yeah, many of us are seeing this work for the first time, but you're very familiar with it, I think. 
thanks. Um, <laughs> poison chalices. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I found that very interesting. Thank you, uh, Lena. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know the description of the art, uh, you know, worked. I think we could see a lot more in what you've described and how it reflects the. The, the political theory. Um, I suppose I've spent. Uh, it, it does describe me on the blurb as um, as, a, as a policy advisor. I, I somewhat shrink from that, but um, I suppose I've been used to um, uh, in my naval career picking up the pieces of the uh, the, the world of anger and fear, um, and and they do they do resonate. I have. I wonder though whether, firstly, I'll I'll try and pose a few questions that people might be interested in. Um, firstly, whether the the central thesis is, a, is about our own self-awareness on an individual scale, on a national scale and an international scale. If, we're, if, we, if we are more in touch with who we are and what state we're in, however one describes it, um, whether that is your plea, um, essentially. And I'd be interested to know what hope you think there is in this. Um, but I, I think you've got an interesting blend here. A lot of, some of the references uh, refer to people like uh, 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 Jürgen Habermas, a, a, a Marxist materialist historian. And I wonder, in your research, how you found um, people like that, uh, people, theorists like uh, Habermas, have, have, have supported, strengthened what you say? Do you find, uh, have you found... Um, uh, words of su- support there, um, and uh, my my other my question about uh, which reflects on hope is whether um, you talked about uh, um, working on a collective level. What hope there is for people to work on a collective level uh, in this globalized world is is globalization a force for good or a force for bad? Um, and I think we've seen. Uh, both, and we've seen examples um, of, of that in, in, recent, in recent times. And we've seen nation states take a great interest in post 9 11 in, um, uh, in, in, uh, in individuals. Um, uh, there are big power blocks out there which aren't necessarily nation states either these days. So we've got some big forces at, at play here. Mm-hmm. Question mark. Okay. So should I answer or should I wait for... Well, let's, let's give Rory a go first and then you can do a quick answer and then we want to bring in the, the people. All right. Yes. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Leah. That's great. I, I think it's really interesting seeing a, a framework down for the reasons that we get into um, violent conflict and, and war. So um, I, I completely sort of I buy into the, this structure of the kind of um, psychological conditions that humans uh, get themselves into um, as a prelude to violence. And I suppose my, uh, my work has been for the past few years with Gene Sharp, who um, some of you may know, some of you may not. He's probably the leading theorist of strategic nonviolent action um, in the world. And he's written uh, several books which have been used by revolution- revolutionary groups all over the world. Um, including the, in the Arab Spring and particularly the Serbian Revolution, uh, which brought down Milosevic. And I'd just like to draw um, a kind of line between, uh, I suppose, peace and nonviolence and strategic nonviolent action, which is what Gene Sharp 
uh, writes about. And there has traditionally been a bit of a conflict between uh, peace research, peace studies, and uh, Gene Sharp's work, which is strategic nonviolent action. And that difference that um, he describes, nonviolence is the absence of violence, but not the presence of anything else. So it's pure passivity. You just, you just sit back and go, we're not doing anything about this. We're, you know, we're not going to act violently, but we're not going to do anything to repl- replace it. So he came up with this slightly ugly term, which is strategic non-violent action, which kind of needs a, new, a sort of rebranding job, but that's what it is. And he says, instead of maintaining passivity, what you need to come up with are tools, weapons of non-violent action, which you can actually use to combat uh, whatever, whatever oppression or injustice you are fighting. Um, and the, the problem is not with conflict, which many of the peace studies proponents, you know, they say we want, to take, we want to solve all conflict. We don't want to have conflict with each other. What Gene Sharp says is conflict is natural. It's something that helps us evolve as human beings. So to remove conflict is unrealistic. But what we need to do is take the violence out of conflict and replace that with other tools. So when I look at your list and I, I look at suffering and hunger and fear, and there, these are all things that um, Gene Sharp, Sharp talks about too, but my question is always, so what do, we, what do we do with that? How do we react? And I think the reaction is, is the most important thing. And rather like, I suppose, I, I thought about having a, a, the analogy of a boxer. Now, if I were to punch you in the face, you'd probably be quite upset about that and slightly shocked and <laughs> we, we would all um, that's true but you can manage to punch me very fast you'd probably be okay but if you were a heavyweight bo- boxer and I punched you in the face you, um, you'd probably it would probably just you would be used to being uh, punched and that is effectively what a cheating shot says basically <laughs> You, can, you wouldn't like it very much, but you'd get used to it. So the analogy is that if you can prepare people enough for fear and you can train them, that they can make some positive action out of it. Um, so it's how we, we um, train our, our, sort of our basic selves. Like a, a child cannot just snatch food out of their mother's hand. They're taught, so they're socialised through that. So perhaps what we haven't had in human society is a sort of an alternative to violence, an alternative... Our natural reactions to violence or fear has always been to lash out because there hasn't been a very good alternative and not a very well-defined alternative. And so my final point on that is when we come to the goodness and holiness, I suppose uh, this is an argument that this is the most important part because it can take charge of all the others. I wonder whether um, that part alone is correct because should... Um, this be done because of some sort of uh, holiness or goodness or should non-violent action be taken because it's effective and I think the reason that non-violent action in recent years has been taken is because it's growing in its um, effectiveness Uh, not that because you have to be good in some way um, that you have to be morally superior uh, and, that it, and that it doesn't have to be in any particular society which, in, which is in a, in a state of goodness or holiness. We should be acting um, non-violently because it's effective and it actually works um, to develop those, those means of um, uh, getting away from a, a violent conflict in, yeah. in these, from, from these internal worlds. Yeah. Would you like to comment now or take... Um...
some um, feedback from the audience? Uh, then I've put in all the points for the six yeah. <laughs> questions, so maybe I'll answer these and Just we'll quickly, go. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. So I'll start with the um, uh, Captain Adrian Kassar's points. The first one is. Um, you told me whether I'm hoping that individuals would be having a reflection or am I trying to you know, change the collective. Basically, um, through these uh, paintings and the, and the traveling exhibition that I'm doing, I'm hoping to touch individuals because it's individuals who make up the collective. Among these individuals, there, there would be people who are in leading positions maybe, and then so they'll have probably more influence. So it's really... Um, it's really the the individual person that I'm trying to reach, um, and if the if those individual persons are also in powerful leading positions, that that would be great, <laughs> uh, because then they would probably hopefully uh, make an examination and you know see how they're from which world they're taking out action and. Um, and the second point was you mentioned Habermas and how I have. Uh, how I have connected him to the work. Well, Habermas speaks about dialogical rationality, which for me was very interesting because he says basically you have to push your rationality in a way that when you're dialoguing with other people, you'll be able to understand the other person's point of view. And um, also, you know, he speaks about the public sphere, that people can, you know, express their... their, um, Mind um, and and the discussion would go you know out in the in, in the public if I may say, um, and this has to do with the internal world of rationality of Richard Nettlebo and also the world of uh, intellect of of Tai and Tai, uh, and you know um, Rory just mentioned uh, the the fact that very often we don't have any alternatives to violence when there a conflict rises. And I honestly think very often we just don't push our intelligence enough to find alternatives because it takes a lot of work, a lot of inspiration, a lot of creativity, and a lot of brain work you know, to find creative works. And, um, and maybe also a, a bit of um, an open heart as well, I don't know. But... Um, the fact that Habermas pushes for our rationality to develop, um, that is how I connected um, his works to mine. And then you mentioned globalization forces. Um, globalization forces, I mean, that's just the, um, the way the world is always changing. Everything is in movement. So, you know, we're trying to catch up with all the changes that are happening. And that's why when I mentioned the internal world of human calm, that's when, you know, simply having a job and, and a house and a family and a car may not be enough for your security because, you know, an earthquake might suddenly happen. Um, a terrorist attack, yes, might happen, <laughs> you know. So um, that's when... Um, uh, being prepared for challenges and also being prepared to develop always further is is uh, is important, I think, in my humble opinion. <laughs> yes. Um, next, uh, Rory's point. Um, there is one thing which I, uh, for, I I missed to mention when I was talking about the internal world of intellect. Um, one of the dangers, besides being disconnected from the heart, is also a sense of uh, superiority that uh, people can develop in that state. And 
Unfortunately, um, from a, an emotional heart point of view, nobody likes to be treated as an inferior. So even if, uh, say, um, help is being offered, if that help is being offered with a sense of superior, superiority, um, people are likely to, to reject it. And, um, and then I, I come back also to your point when you said, you know, being nonviolent, um, maybe it's not just for being holy and all that, but it's just because it's effective. Um, yes, I mean, I hope I didn't sound too moralistic or anything. <laughs> you know? But um, and it's, it's, it is, in fact, for being effective, perhaps to improve the quality of our life. It's debatable maybe what good quality is and what bad quality is. But if um, somebody you know, punches me in the face, that doesn't really look like a good quality life. So, <laughs> so, you know, so um, from, from that perspective, um, nonviolent action, I do agree very much with Jean Sharp that um, peace is, is not absence of conflict. Conflict is, is a very natural part of human interaction, and I would say even important for our growth and development. Um, because otherwise we fall back in the you know, internal world of human calm and we just go passive, and in a way it's not very interesting, is it? <laughs> you know? So, um, and um, you know, I, I was telling you, I think yesterday, uh, I, I'm teaching art at the secondary school in Malta, and sometimes when, the, when there is a problem between some students, I ask them, so what's, what's the problem? Why are you fighting? Say one would you know, need a pencil and the other one is taking it, I don't know. And I would offer them a solution, and that would really solve the problem. And then they kind of look at each other, but that's boring. Now we have nothing to fight about. <laughs> so... Um, it, I think conflicts, in a way, um, bring out a certain livelihood. So, but it's just that the, the way we go about them don't have to lower the quality of our life, be it, don't have to impose pain and suffering, um, physical, moral, emotional, you know, as long as they're not um, imposing uh, suffering, it should be fine, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything I missed? Yeah? Okay, great. That's cool. yeah. Okay, so let's uh, ask for questions. We, we have a microphone here. You probably don't need it, but it's good for the podcast uh, that it's picked up on that. So questions, contributions? Sorry, as I say, you're, I'm sure we can hear you, but uh, this will <clears throat> be in a podcast later. Thanks. A basic question to start with, off the intellectual plane that we've been surfing on. Um, in your ten criteria, um, as we watch the great religious schism of uh, Islam break loose once again in Iraq, but also in Egypt, Syria, um, everywhere else, where do you put religious intolerance into this package? Yes, very interesting. Um, Yes, religious intolerance, um, it comes with the, in, in my <laughs> view, it comes in world of fear and world of intellect. Because that is when we become blind. Um, I don't know what the aim of the religious people who are fighting for the religion is. But when they are lowering the quality of life of people, when they're executing somebody because the person decided that's not a religion for him, they're lowering the quality of life. They're not allowing the development of that person. Um, and it's out of fear, again. Um, anything, I think, any actions which are taken out of total fear, 
um, they they don't um, lead to good quality life. So, if they're taking it with a benevolent, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, mindset, it would probably have better quality results. Yeah, I would put them under fear and um, and intellect. Yeah. And I forgot my manners. Thank you for the answer, but also. Oh, did you enjoy that? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, if you would like, perhaps, even if it's not a question, if it's a comment, um, yeah. it would be nice to hear. Yes. Yeah. yes, I wish to reclaim the word fear. Mm-hmm. Um, fear is perhaps uh, part of a whole sequence of things, but as you implied, it can be used as a fuel, mm-hmm. just as can vanity, lust, pride, anger, sloth, and greed. Mm-hmm. It's what you do with that fuel. Say you're mm-hmm. fearful, which I am, thanks God, we are all, and mm-hmm. sometimes in our life fearful, it has saved our life. Yeah. So fearful, but then you're confused. What should you do? Run, fight? Yeah. If you can automatically, you go somewhere else. You go down into spite. You get into hate and coldness and everything else. <laughs> but if you can just hold that confusion, mm-hmm and get courage. Yes, it takes discernment. Um, not everybody has patience for that, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, it takes... One it has it, to, it takes, has yeah. That's right. And Rory was saying also, it's what, how you react to it that yeah, would create a problem or be beneficial. Yeah, thanks for... Yeah, I think that's... Um, in that sort of clumsy punching analogy, I don't know if any of you have seen... Um, the the film The Butler, but in in that is a very good uh, piece of footage from the civil resistance movement, uh, where they are all sat down on chairs and they are abused verbally, physically, beaten, and that is to train them for what inevitably will come when they go out on onto the streets um, and protest and get taken into custody. During the Serbian revolution, Otpor trained uh, all of their activists on how to be beaten, what would happen when they went into the prisons, what it would look like, how long they would be taken there, what, they, what the questions would be. And by um, simulating what would happen to them, they managed to take away some of that fear. Um, and so that is how it's used in a, in a positive sense, in a strategic non-violent action, that you prepare uh, the people who are fighting it for what, what will come inevitably. Okay, hi. Uh, I've got something to add. Um, uh, someone asked about uh, how do you see religious intolerance in terms of uh, the internal worlds. I think uh, <coughs> you mentioned fear. I, I wanted to add that it's also to do with uh, uh, the greed for power. I think that's a very important factor. Uh, and also when you look in terms of uh, uh, Freud uh, compared to uh, Alfred Adler, so Alfred Adler's theory was that uh, we have very power, very uh, uh, kind of uh, important power complex that we are always fighting for power, and that's the nature of human beings. And uh, so this is something I wanted to add that it's uh, I think one of the way of looking at that is the hunger for power uh, over others. And uh, the other thing I wanted to add was uh, about conflict. You know, you mentioned that how conflict is an inherent part of human societies and uh, 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 what I wanted to, uh, I'm a poet and uh, uh, I have been writing a lot about, uh, I'm from India so I've been writing a lot about conflicts in the Indian society and 
and um, it's, it's just got me thinking that uh, um, as human beings we're trained to uh, learn about science, about mathematics about art, about politics but we're never trained to bring out the qualities of our life which can kind of uh, resolve conflicts, which can uh, understand how to respect other people, how to uh, bring full expression to ourselves and allow others to bring full expression to ourselves. So that's what I wanted to add. Can I take up on that, uh, yeah. Professor? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I'd, I'd just like to echo that. I think it's very interesting that, that what we've heard from Lida uh, and her interpretation of Ned LeBeau and so on, I, I think I, I mentioned... Uh, Self-awareness, but I think it goes a long way to emotional intelligence, and I think that's it's, it's emotional intelligence uh, between us as individuals and on a on a larger scale that I think you're getting at uh, there. Yes, I think that um, greed for power is is also part of religious because the, the leading religious um, people would would want to have control over the people, and yeah, I think it, it's also that. Although I, I, I do think that there are some the, the big forces that I uh, that I meant uh, that I mentioned. Um, you know, we, we we are dealing with um, inequality of of uh, access to power, inequality in terms of uh, resources, and and the and the levelling out of of that uh, inequality. I think is uh, mo- most people see um, um, a route for uh, violence as a means to as a means to resolve that. Yeah, in fact, um, there is Paul Lederick that I've also quoted, and he mentions the cooperation between the different levels of um, of power. So, you know, be it from the grassroots, from intermediaries, government, uh, government positions. It's just that, you know, to get cooperation is not always easy, but um, I think it is very important yeah, that uh, there would be communication between the, the different... Um, the different, uh, how can I call it, you know, layers of of power in, within the same society. Mm. Can I yeah. just put a point in on religion before I bring the, my friend in there? The, the, um, we've described religion as being about fear and uh, greed. I, you know, I think that's an outsider's view of religion, which as an outsider myself I kind of share. Uh, I mean, religious people would probably say that conflict of, of religion is partly about compassion. If you believe that you have the one true God and you want to share it, uh, that they, and that is a sincere belief, uh, then this isn't something that comes out of fear or greed necessarily. I think it's, it's very easy to get caught up into a kind of uh, a, a secular Western account of, 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 of the, the emotions. Cru- of the Crusades. Um. <laughs> yes, I mean, they would, they would actually kill you and tell you we're killing you for your own good, you know. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was sincerely believed by yeah. many people so yes. in the European Middle Ages and probably yes. still is now. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think one... We can accept too readily a secular, rational account of the virtues. I think that's one of the complaints that most academic scholars have about Ned LeBeau's work, is that that he kind of, this is a a 21st century view of what the Greeks were like uh, uh, two and a half millennia ago. In fact, their their sense of the emotions and the Mm -hmm. virtues was actually rather different. But mind you, um, I personally, since I was... 
born in Iran and we lived there until I was 14, I can tell you that until those years I didn't have a Western view on the world. And still, at school, at primary school, when they used to ask us in the morning assembly, you must shout out at 8 o'clock in the morning, Death to America! And, you know, I told my teacher, you know, I, I want to think about the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in the morning, you know. I, I'm seven years old. <laughs> Probably a good job you left, <laughs> So if I'm asking God to kill that country, what if they're also asking God to kill us? Whom is he going to listen to? You know what I mean? No, so, <laughs> so and, that wasn't, and that wasn't necessarily coming from a mastermind. It was coming from a kid's reasoning sure. head, you know? Um, so, yeah. Let's bring another voice in. Hello. Um, thank you so much for such an interesting um, talk. I'm really looking forward to the exhibition now. Um, I think just, just something, just a comment to add about to all of this is basically um, this idea of sort of the different internal worlds. I found that fascinating. I'm one of Ned LeBeau's students, actually, so it's kind of... I'd like to talk to you about that afterwards. But anyway, um, this idea, I think something that links in to possibly to, like, links all of the worlds together... Um, is this sort of sense or this need for stability, I think, this sort of stability of the self. And, and it comes back to Rory's point about uh, training. So often we're trained to think or to, to behave or react in certain ways, and, and that's often devoid of, of compassion in certain ways. You know, it's more, it's more of a violent um, sort of view or take on, on things, unfortunately, but that's possibly because it's easier to get to power that way than it is through compassion. Um, I think maybe um, somebody's work, I think it's um, this idea of ontologically being ontologically secure, it's Jennifer Mitson's argument that you know you derive stability through conflict, and that's kind of, when, when it's set in motion, it, it, just, it just works that way. And it's, she's, um, I think she's used examples of um, states and how, um, I think she, talk about, she talked about... Uh, Specifically, I think somebody may have used to work to uh, talk about the subcontinent. So if you talk about uh, India and Pakistan, this idea of this rivalry and how it can be used and as a sort of a fuel this sort of, uh, to gain stability. So this identity of, of the respective nations has been is derived through conflict. So it's a lot easier to gain stability through conflict, which is kind of counterintuitive. But it, it, it somehow happens to work. So I think possibly using this idea that conflict can generate stability is the sort of thing you think about, I think. Great, so, thanks. Yes. There is a Johann Galtung, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, he speaks about negative peace and positive peace. So negative peace is the absence of war, and positive peace is being able to handle conflict in a creative, non-violent, and empathic way. So perhaps that's also the stability you're referring to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Yes. Hi. Um, I just want to ask, um, to what extent do you think uh, artistic sort of knowledge, teachings, um, messages can sort of be portrayed to students and try and change their perception about um, political motives or political views or just simply emotion? Um, for example, I'm thinking of William Hogarth as an artist. Um, he used to paint a lot of conflict within the British community. I mean, how, how do you think artistic knowledge or 
um, paintings by various artists, whether it's politically, can stimulate a sort of emotion for students, say at the LSE or at other universities or around the world? Well, Professor Danchev should have been here to answer that question. Honestly, when it comes to the effectiveness of this work, um, is the audience who would hopefully, you know, come up with the answer. But um, if I may answer your question um, in a different way, you know, uh, we study about the, the aesthetic rules, how to make a good composition in a painting. So you have to watch the balance, uh, the harmony, uh, focal point, um, textures, you know, and. It's very interesting because if you uh, really observe these uh, aesthetic rules, what makes a picture look beautiful, you find reflections of these rules in real life. So if, you know, when I was showing you, say, um, the world of... Oh, by the way, this, um, this world of intellect, um, there are only a few flowers here because... It's showing when we're taken up by our intellect, become, we become very lonely individuals. <laughs> so that's when we've disconnected from the other sides of life. Um, so yes, coming back to, to, to the, the rules of aesthetics, they, uh, I think we can find them in real life. For example, in a painting we say you must balance the darker sh shades with the darker tones, with the lighter tones. In real life, you know, you try to balance your pains and your suffering with your joy in order, you know, not to uh, lose your head. Um, also, for example, if you have a focal point in a painting, everything else would have to lead the eye of the viewer towards that focal point. So if in your life, I don't know, you are studying international relations, maybe you direct all the other areas of your life in a way which is being led with your studies in international relations. Um, there is, uh, say, the principle of rhythm in, 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 uh, in a painting composition, and that's when uh, you repeat something in a picture that creates a rhythm. Like here, I repeated the lines of the, of the paintings. So say in your life, if you, have, uh, you wake up every day at 7 o'clock, or if you go to bed every day at, at 7 o'clock, that creates a rhythm in your, in your, in your life. Um, this is from a you know, deeper point of view. This is how I see the connection between between art, aesthetics, and, and real life. Uh, but when it comes to knowledge, which is being passed through artistic work, um, then that's really, I think that depends on the strength of your work and how, how good you manage to do your work. I don't know how good of a painter I am. Others would have to <laughs> judge that. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting point as to... Um, how literal some of the uh, artists are. And some of those statements can be very much in, in your face. I was struck recently by um, the exhibition that's on at the National Portrait Gallery on the, on the First World War um, artists. And, and, and some of those, some, um, of those paintings are uh, shocking, um, especially when they're dealing with injuries. Um, so, you know, the, the, you can't help but but uh, step back and uh, uh, consider the, the, the cost the cost of war and, and, and conflict. Um, and I think some of the work that we've seen here is much more subtle. And Hogarth was, was quite uh, um, lit literal. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. 
If I may add something to add, in my case, it's been a conscious choice to focus on the beauty, even when I'm expressing suffering and all that. And the reason is, has to do with my personal life. I witnessed tragedy in real life. I saw people being dying under the bombardments, family members, friends. I saw um, proofs of people being tortured, again, people that I knew. Um, so it's like... I've had enough of that, <laughs> you know. Uh, and if I can't find enough of beauty and some gentleness and some delicacy in the world around me, then, you know, I created in the paintings and they are part of the physical reality on the walls. So, you know, they're adding something gentle which can maybe create that balance again in the composition. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it depends. I mean, different artists have different ways of, of working. Yeah, Some, I, yeah. Yeah, I assume your view is sort of look at colour and abstract to try and get a general emotion from your paintings rather than mm. Hogarth, for example, would look at something quite realistic or something which is physically happening, <laughs> emotion, um, like a frame in time. Whereas you might have to use your mind or maybe use the colour a bit more with your paintings and to try and get the same message or same motive. Mm. Yes. Is, is there a big difference between popular culture and, if you like, elite culture. Well, Hogarth is popular culture in a way, isn't it? It's time. And, uh, I mean, speaking as an international relations professor, I've taken part in panels on Battlestar Galactica and at the next, uh, uh, at the next International <laughs> Studies Association conference, there's going to be a sequence of panels on the Game of Thrones. Uh, and the justification for this that the people organising these would say is that... Ordinary, ordinary people learn more through that kind of popular culture than they do through any academic text. There's a sense, I mean, it, it, there's an interesting question about the audience here for this. Mm -hmm. So you think it's elitist or is it popular? <laughs> That's what I, 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 I guess I'm Discuss. asking you, but perhaps we should ask the audience. Uh, um, do you, how do you see it? Uh, uh, yeah. Shoot. <laughs> I think it tends to convey a sense of emotion. Um, and thus, I've studied photography, and that's a method in order to show a specific moment and some emotion within that. But your work shows an overall emotion um, in a way that something like photography has a much harder time doing. Now, I must say, um, I had exhibited these paintings at the Rary Museum in St. Petersburg last September, and uh, there were visitors who were coming, if I may say, from the elite <laughs> side, and then there were also visitors coming um, from the non-elite side, some of them maybe didn't even have much, uh, you know, just after maybe primary school education, and um, I was so happy to see that from both uh, groups, there were people who were sincerely touched. And um, that, for a um, typical painter, is, you know, a huge satisfaction. Um, because, you know, we ourselves live kind of between the elites and the poor, because sometimes you don't sell any painting, you end up just drinking tea. <laughs> and then sometimes you sell a painting and you're running around with diplomats, you know. <laughs> so it's like you're running around the different sectors all the time. Um, so from my art, I, when I create them, really, I don't think so much about the... Maybe the intellectual part of the work is grasped better by people who are, you know, doing um, advanced studies. But um, 
the emotional side and the main concept can still be grasped maybe by people who aren't so much into it. In fact, there is a plan with these paintings. Uh, we're making big prints of them to go around with, uh, with buses and all that to several village, villages in Russia. Some of the uh -huh. people at the museum proposed that project. So, uh, because they were, they were telling me that it's people in the villages who need this type of empowerment. And um, so that, that's online. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Adrian? No, I was just laughing. trying to pick up something, a comment in the audience. So that's all. <laughs> Share it with us. It's great. A question at the back. Comment at the back. Thanks. Uh, a, a bit of a more of a comment than a question. I'm I'm a little bit uh, intrigued that virtually all the areas that were mentioned in the presentation in terms of the internal world. Uh, spirituality or religion, intellect, and so on. Uh, it occurs to me, uh, linking with what the other panelists said in terms of the individual, the country, and the, the world, that the world is made up of people at different stages. You know, when a baby, there is more uh, focus on the physical side, you know, the intake, the output, and the other aspects are less uh, prominent or a lesser aspect. When one becomes older, say, you know, an older child and you become 20, there are other aspects of the internal world that are more predominant. When you become 30, 40, again, there are other aspects, maybe the intellect uh, and, and maybe 50, 60 more wisdom. And the world is made up of all of these people at different stages with, with different aspects more prominent. So that one doesn't have, in, in any one community, one would find all these different aspects. And therefore, it's, it's within the family, the community, that one has to sort of marry all these different uh, aspects. So I don't see it as something that will be either or, which is better or not so good. And uh, the other person who mentioned about the individual and the, the country and the world, I was very surprised that the community was left out because I thought that that was a, a critical link, really, because the world is a set of communities and you might have borders here or there, but um, I, I think the, the communities are, are a more important aspect of, of uh, or sort of building block or cell uh, from which to operate. And I just wondered if anyone had any comments or ideas about that. Um, yes, if, if I may, yeah? Go. Yes, um, yes, I do agree with you that these worlds are not separate from each other. In fact, the, you know, they're all of them are happening at the same time. I might be angry at something, I might be hungry for something and, and make decisions. And also regarding the collective, um, it's, uh, I, I do also stress the point that even though I'm trying to reach out to the individual, but it's because the individual, in order to sort of tell the individual that what you're doing with your own life is actually having an influence on the international scene. So not to underestimate individual power within the collective, that, that we are so much linked. So, and, and that, 
is also stressing the the life of the community that once you are improving the quality of your own actions and your own thoughts um, you're also helping your community to 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 advance or, or to have a better quality um, life this is the way um, I was seeing it I don't know if I'm meeting your point yeah I, I was thinking that the the individual act 20, the same person at 20 okay. is not quite the same person at 5 or 6 or yeah. at 40 or at 60 or at 80. And it, it, it's the same person but uh, yeah. with very different views and aspects of different life stages. And so in communicating and, and, and engaging individually and collectively one has to have ways or ideas or strategies to engage with all at the same time. Yeah. I think it's, it's so difficult to get the, the sense of community that you're saying, which is where you articulate these different modes of people's lives. I mean, it, it, it's a kind of idealised version of a community that exists in traditional societies. It's much more difficult to recreate, I think, in in vast industrial societies. Many of our communities are now virtual. They're online communities. They're, they're not necessarily kind of face-to-face -face communities of the kind which bring together young, old, middle-aged and kind of, if you like, moderate each other through that. It becomes more difficult now, I think. Perhaps it, um, I, I, I was thinking whilst you were talking about community, you know, what lies between individual and nation communities. I, I, I was thinking about Ukraine and what's going on in Slavyansk and Eastern Ukraine at the moment. One might say that's uh, evidence of where, in extremists and in, in extreme conditions, the communities uh, uh, have come together. One could take a different view, of course, but uh, there, there are communities there where, who, who share that identity and want change. So I'd agree with you about uh, that, that level, uh, indeed. But is this intensifying emotions by coming together in that way? Mm. Mm. The, yeah, different stages of a person's development, you know, from five-year-old to ten-year-old. Yeah, no. yeah um, I mean, here, obviously, we're speaking about adults rather than children. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't go into that separation. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the middle. Um, yeah. Thank you for the presentation. You mentioned that conflicts are sometimes unnecessarily important, but um, from your point of view, how do you define peace? How do I find peace? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the. Uh, I find peace when I manage to deal with the conflict in a way which doesn't create pain, um, doesn't result in pain for the other entity and for myself, but it improves the situation that we are in. So, I don't know. Perhaps you, are you thinking of any particular conflict as a as an example? No. Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I do agree with the definition of Galtung that it's not the absence of war or of conflict, but it's dealing with the conflict in a way which is creative, uh, which is empathic towards the other entity and ourselves, 
and, uh, and also it's non-violent as much as possible. So um, I don't have to belittle the person that I'm having a conflict with. I don't have to um, kill the other person that I'm having a conflict with. I don't have to um, you know, torture them. But, you know, find a way out which can work well for both sides. There is the win-win approach, you know, that I've mentioned. Several uh, peace scholars have, have um, pointed that out. That uh, many people think when there is a, a problem, there is always a, a party which has to win and the other party which has to lose, and it's not the case. You can have a win-win situation when there is a problem. Yeah. So, and, and it's that win-win situation I always try to focus on, because then you encourage the other party uh, to cooperate when they know they're going to get something out of it also for themselves and they cooperate you know <laughs> yes um, thank you very much for, for your wonderful creations and your, your presentation um, I want to just um, make a comment about what was said earlier that conflict is an inevitable uh, aspect of human life and I want to draw on a comment that was made here earlier um, there is a school of thought called conflict-free conflict resolution, which is emerging as part of peace studies and has been the foundation of some of the work that's been done in Bosnia-Herzegovina and Africa and some other communities. In that model, the understanding is that just as a single human being, we go through different stages of development and therefore our understanding of conflict changes. As a collective entity, as a human society, global society, we go through the same stages of development. And we're going through a transitional point in our history at this moment. Mm -hmm. So our understanding of conflict is shifting, transforming mm -hmm. from one that is inevitable, it's a natural thing, mm -hmm. we have to live with it, it you know, from conflict comes peace, so on and so forth. We're transitioning to a new stage of understanding. Do we really need conflict? Do we view conflict as we've used to or not, or are there new ways of viewing it? And in the, in the conflict-free conflict resolution school of thought, um, you're Persian, you pro probably understand Farsi, you know, there's this wonderful bait that says, an essence that is not, that does not bear life, how can it give life to the living? So if conflict is a destructive force, if, if conflict is something that creates imbalance, if conflict is something that, that takes away freedom of, of equality, of, of uh, understanding the win-win situation, mm -hmm. how can it then lead to peace and stability and balance? Mm -hmm. So what is it that we viewed as conflict, as contradiction that needs to change? What is that shift in worldview that needs to happen in order for us to understand what is a new definition of conflict and how to make it a constructive force rather one that is inevitably going to create imbalance which then may, may or may not result in peace and, and I would like to propose that it doesn't necessarily lead to peace or balance. So um, I would like to, to bring that to your attention and ask, uh, because I think your paintings actually, I missed most of your presentation, but I think your paintings speak to um, understanding conflict in a whole new way <laughs> and to make it a constructive force and to make it a far more, far more balanced view and one that is far more cooperative rather than competitive in nature. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I just want to bring that to your attention and ask you to please emphasize that more. And of course, you just at the very end mentioned about the win-win situation, which goes along exactly with the CFCR, conflict with conflict resolution uh, model that is now emerging in the world of uh, peace studies. Yes, in fact, I missed to include that reference in my presentation. You know, Charles Darwin had come up with the idea of competitiveness in nature and the survival of the strongest and all that. And now um, I know that scientists are speaking about the fact that he made a misinterpretation about his uh, study. It, the nature is not based on a model of competition. It's actually based on a model of cooperation because it helps survival more than on competition. Um, you know, I had to add a whole new uh, then scientific <laughs> information into my presentation, but yes, I do uh, agree with, with, with what you're saying. And, um, and I was very happy when I came across the scientist who is doing this work. Um, so, yeah. But again, that cooperation also takes a lot of intelligence, and, you know, the lazy way out is to eliminate the person who's causing you a problem. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the, uh, as you know, this is connected with a, a recept uh, with a uh, ex exhibition that's taking place in the atrium of the old building at the LSE. And I think after thanking uh, Lida for a great presentation and thanking you for the contributions, uh, there will be a reception in that uh, exhibition, so uh, to which you are all invited. So please uh, uh, come over to the main building of the LSC, the main entrance, to get to uh, the atrium and see these pictures in much better colour than you've got here. <laughs> yeah. But before we do that, uh, can I thank uh, Lida for a, a great presentation, really interesting discussion. Well, thank and, you.